So recently, actually, we had the commemorations for the 107th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide at Tzitzanakabert Monument here in Yerevan. But uh, as people march toward Tzitzanakabert, very few realize the man behind the monument. And I don't mean the architect or the artist. I'm talking about the man politically who was responsible for allowing the monument to come to fruition, which was Yaakov Zerobian. Barev, my name is Pietro Shakarian, and I am presenting to you the final installment of Seven Who Made History, and today I will tell you about Izarobian and his contributions to Armenia in the Soviet era. So Yaakov Zarobian was the first secretary of Armenia during the latter period of the Thaw era. The Thaw, known in Russian as Otipel or Zinhali Jamanak in Armenian. And this, uh, uh, this period, this was, he was in office as the first secretary of Armenia literally from 1960 to 1966. He was born in the city of Artvin. So Artvin, if you know where this is, today it is in Turkey. It was part of the um, the area of Batumi, as a matter of fact. So if you go back to the Russian Empire, it was part of the Batum Oblast. This area of Artvin was a city with many Armenians, and it was later ceded to Kemalist Turkey by the Soviet leadership in the treaties of Moscow and Kars in 1921, in those two treaties. And so actually what happened was Yakov Zorobian's family, uh, they were living in Artvin, but... In uh, November 1914, when uh, the war broke out between, uh, you know, Russia and Turkey, with Turkey, uh, you know, Ottoman Turkey, siding with the central powers in Germany, uh, Zorobian's family fled from Artvin, and they moved to our wonderful city of Rostov-on-Don. As a matter of fact, so we talked about Rostov-on-Don, and we talked about Nakichevan-on-Don. We talk about Nakichevan, nor Nakichevan, which is really the... We talked about it in reference to Myasny Khan, in reference to Shushani Korginian, and now we're talking about it in reference to Yaakov Zorobian. Now, Yaakov Zorobian is very, very young. We have to think, Yaakov Zorobian, he was born in 1908, and this is somebody who uh, really is... You know, significant. I mean, this this is somebody who's significantly younger than most of the other people we've talked about. Actually, virtually all the people we've talked about on this podcast. But his story is really, really a fascinating one. So what happened is the family they were living in Rostov. The father died uh, eventually. I mean, they were living as refugees. You have to think about that. Many, many Armenian refugees. The same refugees that Shushani Kurginian would you know care about, write about, and so on and so forth. And so it was here that really he experienced, uh, you know, this hard life for, as a refugee family. Um, and they would actually go into the main area of Rostov. They would actually go into Rostov itself uh, in 1922. And it was there that actually Yakov began really kind of learning Russian. He began kind of, uh, you know, thinking about employment. He actually worked as kind of an apprentice for shoemaker. So he really uh, kind of took off and began to kind of find his own voice, uh, so to speak. It was actually during this period, so Soviet rule was established in Armenia in 1920. And in 1921, Lenin instituted the policy of NIP, which is the new economic policy. And that, again, as I've said earlier on this podcast, was a fusion of capitalism and socialism. And it was uh, at this period that Yakov Zorobian kind of find opportunities in this new Soviet system and move up the social ladder, let's say. In 1925, 
he moved to Haikov. Now, this Haikov, as we know, this is a city in eastern Ukraine, large city, very diverse city. And there, actually, he kind of gradually um, would find work as a laborer. He found work as like a, a worker. So this is somebody who actually had practical experience of what it meant to be a member of the working class. He was working in the Svet mining plant. And it was here that really he, like I said, got his first kind of taste of what it meant to, to really kind of be a worker. But he climbed up the ladder. He actually got involved with the Komsomol. He got involved with the Haikov city administration. He climbed up the ladder and became more and more involved in not only, uh, you know, not only as a worker, but also in the politics. And he also, it was at this period of time that Zorobia met his wife, uh, who actually was from Nakichevan. And he remained in Haikov. He was there right at the period where the Soviet Union began to enter into World War II. So in 1939, there was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And then on June 22, 1941, the Nazis violated that pact and the Germans attacked the Soviet Union. And they invaded the Soviet Union. Now, Zorobian, at the time, he was elected the secretary of the district committee of Haikov. And so he, you know, witnessed the beginning of this war. And actually, he was involved with trying to organize kind of underground partisan resistance to the German invasion. This is actually another quite interesting uh, element to Yakov Zorobian, that his viewpoint was not just, we think of him as an Armenian leader in the context of Armenia, but he was very much involved with actually encouraging many people in Ukraine and in Haikov to resist the Nazi invaders in, in the period of the beginning of World War II. Zorobian, from there, actually his family left Haikov because the Germans eventually were approaching the city and they had to leave, and so they went to Ufa. So Ufa, if you know where this is, is far from Haikov, really, really far from Haikov, uh, and we're talking about Siberia. So he went there with his wife, and they kind of, you know, existed through the rest of the war uh, like this. But from Ufa, as a matter of fact, they set out the war in the city, but after the war... There was an effort to uh, re-energize Armenia with young new talent and to put new people in, in positions of power in Armenia. So this Yaakov Zorobian, who had kind of cut his teeth during the war, first of all, he had cut his teeth earlier as a worker and then um, as a party activist and then as somebody who was involved with the war effort. Now he was kind of being called upon by the Soviet government to serve in Armenia to kind of join the uh, you know Armenian Communist Party. So he was brought to Yerevan. He became head of the department of the administrative bodies of the Central Committee. He then was involved with the Yerevan City Committee. And he kind of kept on climbing his way up the ladder politically in uh, you know the Armenian context. He was one of the major leaders, as a matter of fact, of Armenia, uh, at the time, at the beginning of this period of Otepel, or the Thaw. One aspect of, of Zorobian that actually is quite interesting is he was at, early on on the committee for uh, investigating rehabilitations of former political prisoners after uh, Mikoyan gave his speech on March 11th, 1954. So a week after Mikoyan gave the speech, there was kind of a reconsideration commission established, and Zorobian was one of the officials who was sitting on this committee, according to documents we have from the Russian uh, State Archive and the 
uh, Armenian National Archives. So Zarobian, he was actually involved as the secretary, Central Committee Secretary for Industry by the end of 1953, as a matter of fact. But he really, really made a name for himself as the new first secretary of Armenia in 1960. The secretary of Armenia, who was elected in 1953, after the ouster of Arutinov from power, was um, Suren Tovmasyan. And Suren Tovmasyan was from Sunik originally. Tovmasyan's main uh, agenda was to guide Armenia through these major transformations of the thaw and de-Stalinization. He had significant problems uh, in Armenia with, number one, the issue of rising tide of nationalism. So once uh, there was an effort to kind of liberalize the amount of national expression, the challenge became for many uh, leaders in the Soviet republics to manage to find what is the limit to how much you can express. Uh, what is kind of like a, you know the amount of nationalism that would be acceptable, first of all, by the Soviet regime and that would not veer into kind of like national chauvinism that would create conflict or that would contradict Soviet ideology. So a lot of Soviet leaders had to kind of navigate through that, and Tovmasyan was no exception. Tovmasyan also had to deal with this issue of hooliganism, of kind of like, you know, rebellious youth. And this was a problem for many people in the 1950s, not just in Armenia, um, including even in the United States, uh, we can say that. Um, and so uh, Tovmasyan, though, at the end, he, he was deemed, his uh, work in Armenia was deemed unsatisfactory by Moscow. And in 1960, he was, uh, you know, let go from his position as the first secretary. But he bounced back and became the Soviet ambassador to North Vietnam, and then later Libya. So this actually was a remarkable figure in his own right, Sorrentov Masyan. But uh, Yakov Zorobian became the man who assumed uh, Tovmasyan's position as the new first secretary of Armenia. Now, Zorobian was somebody who was profoundly affected by as we remember the history of the genocide of 1915. His family came from Artvin, a city that they witnessed passing to the control of Turkey as a result of the 1921 uh, you know, treaties between the Soviet authorities and the Kemalists. But also, um, this was somebody whose family had fled as refugees into the Russian Empire. So this issue of the genocide was very, very important for Zorobian. It was one of the top issues. One of the ways he addressed it was to kind of facilitate outreach to the diaspora. So Zorobian was big at kind of building bridges between Armenia and the diaspora to facilitate greater dialogue between these two halves, you know, that had been more or less, uh, because of the Cold War especially, there was more and more division between these two, and he wanted to kind of bring them together and create like a dialogue between Armenians in the diaspora and Armenians in Armenia. That was one effort that Zorobia made. That was one major feat uh, was to kind of, you know, bridge this gap, so to speak, uh, even to kind of encourage, you know, Soviet publications in Western Armenian as kind of a, a way to kind of reach out to people in the diaspora. There was also something else going on that we talk about the 20th Party Congress, of the Soviet Union where Khrushchev denounces Stalin. That was only really one of the major de-Stalinization congresses because the other major de-Stalinization congress was the 22nd Party Congress in 1961, in October 1961. And what happened in this Party Congress was that this was the Party Congress that Khrushchev 
pushed forth the agenda of deep de-Stalinization. This idea of kind of getting rid of Stalin's portrait, getting rid of Stalin's statue, because you have to think, all throughout the 50s, Stalin's portrait and statue are still very ubiquitous in the Soviet Union. And even though he's condemned by Khrushchev, the process of the de-Stalinization, the removal of Stalin's personality cult does not begin overnight. It's, it's a process. The 22nd Party Congress is when this process is you know, really realized. I mean, this is when it really begins. As part of this process, Armenia decides, under Yakov Zorobian, to remove the large Stalin statue uh, at the pedestal of the Victory Monument in Victory, Victory Park in Yerevan. And this is a big, big deal, uh, because Armenia, even though it's a part of the Soviet Union, it, the Armenian authorities have to be wary about uh, how aggressively they pursue this uh, effort to remove the Stalin statue, because they knew that in March 1956, there were major, major demonstrations and unrest in Tbilisi, because many people in Georgia felt that, you know, Stalin had been, uh, you know, besmirched by Khrushchev. And the idea was, uh, we should not go so fast on removing Stalin's statue. And that was actually the idea that Zorobian said, look, you know, comrades, we should not, you know, pursue this, this matter so quickly. And we should be very cautious about removing Stalin. And so he was removed eventually from his pedestal, but it was done in such a way that it did not upset the Georgian authorities, that it was not like made into a huge kind of cause celebre. And the Georgian authorities, by the way, appreciated this move very much. So Zorobian knew how to be tactful with these sorts of issues. Another major event that came up in Armenia at the time was in May 1961. Now, you have to think what the big event was that Armenia um, was celebrating the 40th anniversary of its Sovietization, right? So from the period of really 1920 to 1960, this was, you know, a, a, the 40 years of, of Soviet-Armenian achievement. Zorobian basically was going to be receiving, and the Soviet-Armenian authorities were receiving in Armenia in May 1961, Khrushchev. So you have to think also about the timeline of events, what we're seeing here. I mean, this is, you have to think, what happens on April 13th, 1961? What do the Russians celebrate on April 13th, 1961? And this is the Cosmonauts Day because this is when Yuri Gagarin, you know, basically goes into outer space, the first man into space, and comes back to Earth. And it's a huge achievement for the Soviet Union. This is also the period of the Bay of Pigs invasion, where, you know, Castro and Che Guevara, uh, you know, come to power in Cuba, and it's and it, it alarms the United States, and the United States is concerned that they are going to become communist, and so on and so forth, and it's it's these concerns are not necessarily unfounded because Che Guevara is you know a hundred percent you know Marxist in in his worldview. So CIA decides to attempt to overthrow Castro in the Bay of Pigs invasion, but it completely fails. And even if you look at the Soviet Army and newspapers at the time, they're like, bravo, Cuba, you know, you did a great, uh, you know, thing by, by doing this, by, by, you know, countering the Yankees and so on and so forth. This is also happening at the time. And this lays the foundation for the Soviet-Cuban alliance and then eventually for the Cuban Missile Crisis. And by the way, there's an interesting story. Mikoyan was negotiating with, uh, you know, the Cubans 
and he was negotiating with Che Guevara. And actually, they were really tough negotiations. Che was refusing many things and, and refusing many proposals that Mikoyan was making. And Mikoyan said, well, you know, now I know exactly why they call you Che. Because Che in Armenian means no. And you are always saying no to everything. And so that was, that was you know, one of his lines, I guess you could say. But anyway, so you have that. This, this is the context of what's going on, the international context. And in the case of Armenia, uh, Zorobian is going to receive with the other Armenian leaders, Khrushchev in Yerevan. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal because the Armenians have a big problem in, in Armenia that goes back to the Stalin era, which was the fact that under the government, under the Stalin government, there was an effort to do kind of hydroelectric energy using the waters of Lake Sevan, which resulted in a dramatic drop in the water level of Lake Sevan to the point that the Sevanavank Island became a peninsula. It was a big deal. The Armenian leaders needed to figure out a way to stop the water from declining, to stop the water levels from declining. We have to do something. So the Armenian leadership decided it would be best to take the water from the Arpa River and to redirect it to Sevan. That's going to be our way of, of dealing with it. But they also understood that such an undertaking would be very expensive for the Soviet state budget. So they turned to Mikoyan, who was kind of like the Armenian lobbyist in Moscow, and they said, look, Anastas Ivanovich, we have this idea. We are going to propose to Khrushchev to build this tunnel. What do you think? And Mikoyan said, well, if you're going to propose that to Khrushchev, just give him the cost of the tunnel and don't give him the cost of the total cost, including the associated infrastructure. Just give him the cost of the tunnel because then he'll approve it. Because otherwise, if you give him the full budget, he won't approve it, right? And so that's the idea that they went. Uh, so what happened is Khrushchev came in to Yerevan, they decided to take him to Lake Sevan on a boat. By the way, they, Mikoyan had his boat in Sevan. And so Zarobian went with Anton Kochinian, uh, with the other Soviet army and leaders. Even Marshal Bagramian came with them too. So this was a big deal. They went on Mikoyan's boat. Uh, they actually arrived at Sevan to go on Mikoyan's boat. And Khrushchev blew up. He got very angry. And he said, you know, why is it that we have this beautiful lake and we have no restaurants by this beautiful lake and I don't want to go on Mikoyan's boat? So I refuse. I don't want to. But so what happened is Zorobian and Kochinian had to talk to Khrushchev, persuade him, calm him down, bring him back to earth. And after, you know, talking over things with him, he agreed to go on the boat, however begrudgingly he was feeling. And so Khrushchev went on the boat with the Armenian leaders in Sevan. They had uh, Horovats, actually Ishkhan trout. This is a very, very famous, you know, Sevan trout. And Khrushchev, he loved Lake Sevan. He loved the atmosphere, clear blue lake. He actually took a kopeck and he dropped it in the water and he could see it flow all the way to the bottom of the lake. And he was over-enthusiastic. I mean, he was, he was, he was elated to see this. And Zorobian said, well, if you, you know, Nikita Sergeyevich, if you're so, if you're so happy about the lake, if you love this lake, then you need to do, take action to preserve this lake. So at that point, Zorobian made the proposal to Khrushchev to, for the Arpa Sevan Canal to save Lake Sevan. And Khrushchev uh, actually agreed to this idea. Again, we, we don't understand how the Armenians proposed this to Khrushchev, but this was a major moment because Khrushchev agreed to, you know, um, 
you basically support the Sevan project, which is a not small part of the Soviet state budget, right? That's a big achievement for the Armenians that they got this. So basically it was approved. They got it through and the construction soon began on this Arpa Sevan tunnel to replenish the lake. So that was the other major achievement that Zorobian was himself very personally invested in the revival of Lake Sevan and uh, was deeply involved with Khrushchev on, on determining that. And you have to also think, Zorobian really is a newly minted Soviet leader because as the first secretary, he only comes to power in December 1960. This is a visit that's already taking place in May 1961. So this is pretty quick that, that this is happening. But he is, from the outset, able to kind of talk to Khrushchev and make things work for Armenia. And Khrushchev, you know, he, he speaks very, very... Uh, I mean, he he was speaking in very, very, uh, you know, rosy terms about the Armenians and his speeches. And so things were going pretty well for Armenia. Now, Zorobian uh, also had some additional idea. Like I said, he had, was very uh, concerned about the genocide issue. And he felt that the Soviet Union had to do something to commemorate this genocide because all Armenians understood this was a major pain, a major trauma, and it could not go unaddressed especially if we take into account going back to when this period of the thaw began, there were many youth in Armenia who were protesting against the Soviet Union's um, lack of response to the Istanbul pogrom. So when Armenians were seeing their own fellow Armenians still being persecuted in Turkey, um, they felt that, look, not only do we need to address the, the current issues, but we need to talk about the past, we need to talk about the genocide, and the genocide has to be overtly recognized by the Soviet Union. Why shouldn't it be? Because Turkey is a member of NATO. It's part of the imperialistic alliance. And so we need to uh, acknowledge, uh, you know, this issue of the genocide. So Zorobian's idea was to have kind of a private commemoration of the genocide on April 24th at the Opera House in Yerevan with the Soviet Armenian leaders, and then to advance toward building, constructing a monument, which eventually was realized at Tsitsana Kabert, in Yerevan, to the victims of the genocide. And that was Zorobian's idea. But the commemoration on April 24th, 1965, and you have to think what, what this is. This is not just any ordinary commemoration. From April 24th, 1915 to April 24th, 1965, it's a 50-year period. So this is the 50th anniversary of the genocide. It's a big deal for the Armenians. And when the uh, commemorations start, basically you actually have a popular effort by the Armenian public, popular protests to recognize the genocide. It's a basically protests of about 100,000 people. They're very, very significant for Yerevan, which, I mean, was not known as a very kind of, you know, major city of protest. I mean, there have been, you know, there have been advocacy for Armenian national issues, you know, as a result of the beginning of the thaw after Mikoyan's speech, after Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin. But for the first time, you had real big demonstrations in Yerevan. And people began demanding uh, recognition of the genocide. Some people were demanding return of historical lands to Armenia. This was another major issue that they wanted to talk about, the issue of lands, returning lost lands. But they began to advocate for commemorating the genocide. Now, what's interesting is that this was not really, this was not an anti-Soviet protest. People were fine with the Soviet Union. Their beef was not against the Soviet Union. There was no effort to like desecrate Lenin's statue or anything like that. Many of the young people who were there protesting were imitating 
what they had read about in books about the October Revolution in Petrograd. They were they were kind of going through the motions of uh, you know what they had read about. And actually, there's a great historian, German historian, Maike Lehmann. She wrote an article, Apricot Socialism, of the dual identification of Armenians, Soviet Armenians, with the Soviet uh, socialist ideology and Armenian nationalism. And this kind of fusion really kind of plays out in, in this event, that there was a, a real loyalty to the Soviet government. But on the other hand, they were expressing Armenian national uh, demands. You know, you had these developments basically happening. Now, the, the demonstrations, you know, they, they occurred. There were some feathers ruffled, I should say. But it was not something that was, you know, met with mass repression or anything like this. The leaders in Armenia were, you know, understanding of the population. The population understood them. And, but there were, uh, you know, consequences in the sense that uh, the Soviet leadership perceived that there's nationalism, that there's these problems. But this also enabled the Armenian leaders to propose to Moscow, look, well, yes, we have people demanding things. We have people demanding recognition of, you know, genocide and also demanding lost lands. So maybe we can meet some of these demands. And also, quite frankly, we should actually integrate the history of the genocide with the history of Soviet Armenia and with Soviet history. So the genocide needs to be recognized by the Soviet government officially. So this, these demonstrations in Yerevan in 1965 had the effect of actually influencing the Soviet regime to overtly recognize the genocide and to sanction the construction of the memorial at Tsitsana Kabert. Now, not everything that people wanted was realized because many Armenians also were demanding the unification of Artsakh with Armenia at this time. And this uh, did not go through, um, unfortunately. So you have that uh, context. Now, Zorobian as a leader, unfortunately, did not last long in office. He uh, left office in 1966. Now, there were some major circumstances going on on the all-union level in Soviet politics that Khrushchev was pushed out of office in October 1964. And Mikoyan, subsequently, who was Khrushchev's number two guy, I mean, he was Khrushchev's uh, right-hand man, I should say, was uh, basically forced out of office by the end of 1965. 1966 is when Zorobian leaves office. Now, the reasons for Zorobian's departure were not, uh, you know, tied in with these issues of nationalism or with the genocide demonstrations or anything like this. In fact, it had more to do with the internal politics of Soviet Armenia and, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, Kochinian's desire to become the first secretary, Anton Kochinian, and his desire to become the first secretary of Armenia. So you had that context. So Zorobian basically, at that point, took up a job in Moscow, Really, I mean, he, he um, you know, ended up, he passed away peacefully in 1980 after, you know, retirement, basically. I mean, what he really became, to give you an idea what he, what the position he took in Moscow, was deputy minister for um, Soviet electrotechnical industry. And from that point, you know, basically Zorobian lived kind of more or less a contented life. Basically, he, uh, you know, kind of retired peacefully and he passed away in Moscow uh, in April 11th, 1980. So that is kind of the overview of Yakov Zorobian. He kind of um, closes our series of the seven making history in Armenia. And I do hope that you enjoyed listening to it. And thank you very much. Mm-hmm.